0: Section eighteen of the Book of the Bush. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The Book of the Bush by George Dunderdale. Section eighteen The Two Shepherds. Part three. Towards the end of the year, Nosey arrived at Piney Station, about forty miles from the Murray, and obtained employment. Baldy's bones had been lying under the rocks for nearly fifteen years. It was absurd to suppose that they could ever be discovered now, or, if they were, that any evidence could be got out from them. Nosey felt sure that all danger for himself was past. But still the murder was frequently in his mind. The squatter was often lonely, and his new man was garrulous, and one day, nosy while at work, began to relate many particulars of life in the old country, in Van Diemen's land, and in the other colonies, and he could not refrain from mentioning the greatest of his exploits. "'I once done a man in Victoria,' he said, when I was shepherding. He found me out taking his fat sheep, and was going to inform on me so I done him with an axe and put him away, so as nobody could ever find him. The squatter thought that Nosy's story was mostly blowing, especially that part of it referring to the murder. No man who had really done such a deed would be so foolish as to confess it to a stranger. Another man was engaged to work at the station. As soon as he saw Nosy, he exclaimed, Hello, Nosy, is that you? "'My name is not Nosy.' "'All right. A name is nothing. "'We are old chums, anyway.' "'That night the two men had a long talk about old times. "'They had both served their time in the island, "'and were, moreover, townies, "'natives of the same town at home. "'Nosy began the conversation by saying to his old friend, "'I've been a bad boy since I saw you last. "'I'd done a man in Victoria.' and then he gave the full particulars of his crime, as already related. But the old chum could not believe the narrative any more than did the squatter. "'Well, Nosey,' he said. "'You can tell that tale to the Marines.' In the meantime, the runs around Lake Nyalong had been surveyed by the government and sold. In the Rises, the land was being subdivided and fenced with stone walls, and there was a chance that Baldy's grave might be discovered if one of the surveyed lines ran near it, for the stonewallers picked up the rocks as near as possible to the wall they were building, and usually to about the distance of one chain on each side of it. A man who had a contract for the erection of one of these walls took with him his stepson to assist in the work. In the month of August 1869, they were on their way to their work, accompanied by a dog, which chased a rabbit into a pile of rocks. THE BOY BEGAN TO REMOVE THE ROCKS IN ORDER TO FIND THE RABBIT, AND IN DOING SO, UNCOVERED PART OF A HUMAN SKELETON. HE BECKONED TO HIS STEPFATHER, WHO WAS RATHER deaf, TO COME AND LOOK AT WHAT HE HAD FOUND. THE MAN CAME, TOOK UP THE SKULL, AND EXAMINED IT. I'LL BE BOUND. THIS SKULL ONCE BELONGED TO BALDY, HE SAID. THERE IS A HOLE HERE, BEHIND, AND, YES, ONE JAW HAS BEEN BROKEN. THAT'S NOSEY'S WORK FOR SURE. I wonder where he is now." No work was done at the wall that day, but the information was given to the police. Mounted Constable Carey came over to the rises. The skeleton was found to be nearly entire. One jawbone was broken, and there was a hole in the back of the skull. The feet were still encased in a pair of boots, laced high above the ankles. There were portions of a blue-striped shirt and of a black silk necktie with reddish stripes. There was also the brim of an oiled Southwester hat, a pipe, and a knife. The chin was very prominent, and the first molar teeth on the lower jaw were missing. The remains were carefully taken up and conveyed to Nyalong. They were identified as those of Baldy. An inquest was held, and a verdict of willful murder was returned against Nosey and his wife. After the inquest, Mounted Constable Carey packed up the skeleton in a parcel with every small article found with it, placed it in a sack, put it under his bed, and slept over it every night, and patiently waited for some tidings of the murderer. In those days, news traveled slowly, and the constable guarded his ghastly treasure for eighteen months. Nemesis was all the time on her way to Piney Station, but her steps were slow, and she did not arrive until the seventeenth anniversary of the disappearance of Baldi. On that day, she came under the guise of Constable, who produced a warrant and said, Cornelius Nasso, alias Nosey, alias Pye, I arrest you under this warrant, charging you with having murdered a shepherd named Thomas Balbus, alias Baldi, at Nyalong, in the colony of Victoria on the twenty-eighth day of February, 1854. "'You need not say anything unless you like. "'But if you do say anything, I shall take it down in writing, "'and it will be used as evidence against you at your trial.' Nosey had nothing to say, except, I deny the charge. "'He had said too much already. "'He was handcuffed and taken to the police station at Albury. "'In one of his pockets a letter was found purporting to be written by Julia "'and disclosing her place of residence.' Soon afterwards, Nosey and his wife met in captivity after their long separation, but their meeting was not a happy one. They had no word of welcome for each other. The preliminary examination was held in the courthouse at Nyalong, and there was a large gathering of spectators when the proceedings commenced. On a form below the witness box, there was something covered with a white sheet. Men craned their necks and looked at it over one another's shoulders. The two prisoners eyed it intently. It was guarded by Constable Carey, who allowed no one to approach it, but, with an authoritative wave of the hand, kept back all impertinent intruders. That day was the proudest in all his professional career. He had prepared his evidence and his exhibits with the utmost care. At the proper moment, he carefully removed the white sheet, and the skeleton was exposed to view, with everything replaced in the position in which it had been found under the rocks in the rises. Nosy's face grew livid as he eyed the evidence of his handiwork. Julia threw up both hands and exclaimed, "'Oh, there's poor Baldy that you murdered!' Nosy felt that this uncalled-for statement would damage his chance of escape. So, turning to the bench, he said, "'Don't mind what the woman says, your lordship. She is not in her right senses and always was weak-minded.' The constable, being sworn, related how, on information received, he had gone to the stony rises and had uncovered a skeleton which was lying on a broad, flat stone. The bones of the legs, from the knees downward, were covered with stones. The boots were attached to the feet, and were pointing in such a direction as to show that the body must have rested on the right side. Large stones, but such as one man could lift, had been placed over the feet and the legs. The other bones were together, but had been disturbed. With them he found the brim of an oiled southwester hat, a clay tobacco pipe, a rusty clasp knife with a hole bored through the handle, fragments of a blue shirt, also, pieces of a striped silk neckerchief, marked DS over three. The marks had been sewn in with a needle. There was a hole in the back of the skull, and the left jaw was broken. Just at this time, a funeral procession, with few attendants, passed the courthouse on its way to the cemetery. Julia's father was going to his grave. He had come over to sea lately, to spend the rest of his days in peace and comfort in the home of his daughter, and he found her in jail under the charge of murder. There was nothing more to live for, so he went out and died. The two prisoners were committed, but they remained in jail for more than seven months longer, on account of the difficulty of securing the attendance of witnesses from New South Wales. But when the evidence was given, it was overwhelming. Every man who had known Baldy seemed to have been kept alive on purpose to give evidence against the murderer. Every scrap of clothing which the Wildcats had left was identified, together with the knife, the pipe, the hat brim, and the boots. And the prisoner's own confession was repeated. Julia also took the side of the prosecution. When asked if she had any questions to put, she said, My husband killed the man and forced me to help him to put the body on his horse. The jury retired to consider their verdict and spent two hours over it. In the meantime, the two prisoners sat in the dock as far apart as possible. They had never spoken to each other during the trial. "'and Nosy now said in a low voice, "'You had no call, Julia, to turn on me the way you did. "'What good could it do you? "'Sure, you might have at least said nothing against me.' "'The pent-up bitterness of seventeen years burst forth. "'The constable, standing near, tried to stop the torrent, "'but he might as well have tried to turn back a southeast gale with a feather. "'I was to say nothing, indeed, was I? "'And what call had I to say nothing?' "'Is that what you ask? "'Was I to stand here all day "'and say never a word for myself "'until they were ready to hang me? "'Tell me now, "'did I murder poor Baldy, or did you? "'Was it not you "'who struck him down with the axe, "'without saying as much as by your leave, "'either to me or to him? "'Did you say a word to me "'until you finished your bloody work? "'And then you threatened to cut me down too "'with the axe, if I didn't hold my tongue "'and help you to lift the man "'onto your horse?' It is this day you should have remembered, before you began that night's work. Sorrows the day I ever met you at all, with the miserable life you led me. And you know I was always the good wife to you, until you gave yourself entirely to the devil with your wicked ways. Wasn't I always on the watch for you, every evening, looking for you? And the chop on the fire, and the hot tea, and everything comfortable. And is it to hang me now? You want to pay me back for the trouble I took for you? and all the misery I suffered these long years, and the death of my poor father, who found me in jail, is at your door too, for he would have been alive and well this day, but for the deed you done, which broke his poor old heart. The Lord have mercy on him, and who is to blame but your own self for being in this place at all? You not only done the man to death, but you must go about the bush bragging of it to strangers.' And twisting the halter for your own neck like a born idiot, and that's what you are, in spite of your roguery and cunning. And so on for two hours of hell until the jury came back. They acquitted Julia and found her husband guilty. She left the court without once looking back, and he faced the jury alone. Judge Pullman had never before sent a man to the gallows. He made the usual little moral speech and bewailed his own misfortune in having to perform so disagreeable a duty. Then he put on the black cap and passed sentence. At the concluding words, May the Lord have mercy on your soul, the condemned man responded with a fervent, Amen, adding, And that's the last of poor Nosey." He seemed greatly relieved when the ceremony was over, but it was not quite the last. There was another to follow. For ten days he remained in his cell, and no one visited him except the priest. His examination of conscience was not difficult, for he had often rehearsed it, and much of it had been done for him in public. He made his last journey between two priests, joining fervently in their prayers for the dying. His step was firm, and he showed neither fear nor bravado. The hangman quickly drew down the cap, but he seemed more flurried than his victim. The sheriff, without speaking, motioned him to place the knot in the correct position under the ear. Then the bolt was drawn, and the story of the two shepherds was finished. The man who Philip met at Bendigo had farms in the country thinly timbered. North, south, east, and west, the land was held under squatting licenses. With the exception of the home paddocks, it was unfenced and the stock was looked after by boundary riders and shepherds. To the south, between Nyalong and the sea, a distance of fifty or sixty miles, the country was not occupied by either the white or the black men. It consisted of ranges of hills heavily timbered, furrowed by deep valleys, through which flowed innumerable streams, winding their way to the river of the plains. Sometimes the solitary bushman or prospector looking across the deep valley, saw, nestled amongst the opposite hills, a beautiful meadow of grass. But when he had crossed the intervening creek and scrubby valley and continued his journey to the upland, he found that the deceitful meadow was only a barren plain, covered not with grass, but with a useless grass tree. There is a little saccharine matter in the roots of the grass tree, and a hopeful man from Corio once built a sugar mill near the stream and took possession of the plain as a sugar plantation. There was much labor, but very little sugar. In the dense forest, cattle had run wild and were sometimes seen feeding in the thinly timbered grassland outside. But whenever a horseman approached, they dashed headlong into the scrub where no horseman could follow them. Wild boars and their progeny also rooted among the tall tussocks in the marshes by the banks of the river, where it emerged from the ranges into the plains. Blackfish and eels were plentiful in the river, but they were of a perverse disposition, and would not bite in the daytime. The bend at nearest Nylong was twelve miles' distance, and Philip once spent a night there with Gleason and McCarthy. A fire was kindled, and some fish were caught, but Philip took none home. Gleason and McCarthy reserved their catches for their wives and families, and Philip's fish were all cooked on the fire at sunrise and eaten for breakfast. Fishing was sport, certainly, but it was not profitable, nor exciting, except to the temper. Sometimes an eel took the bait, and then twisted himself round the limb of a tree at the bottom of the river, HE THEN PULLED ALL HE WAS ABLE UNTIL EITHER THE LINE OR THE HOOK WAS BROKEN, OR HIS JAW WAS TORN INTO STRIPS. AFTER MIDNIGHT, PHILIP WAS DROWSY, AND LEANED HIS BACK AGAINST A TREE TO WOO SWEET SLEEP. BUT THERE WERE MOSQUITOES AND MILLIONS, BANDICOOTS HOPPING CLOSE TO THE FIRE, AND MONKEY-BEARS, night hawks, OWLS, POSSUMS, AND DINGOES, HOLDING A corroboree HIDEOUS ENOUGH TO BREAK THE SLEEP OF THE DEAD. After breakfast, the horses were saddled for home. Philip carried his revolver in his belt, and Gleason had a shotgun. A kangaroo was seen feeding about a hundred yards' distance, and Gleason dismounted and shot at it, but it hopped away unharmed. A few minutes afterwards, as the men were riding along at an easy walk, three other horsemen suddenly came past them at a gallop, wheeled about, and faced the fishermen. One was Burridge, a station manager, The other two were his stockmen. The six men looked at one another for a few moments without speaking. Both Gleason and McCarthy had the tipperary temper, and it did not remain idle long. "'Well,' asked Gleason, "'is anything the matter?' "'I dinna ken yet,' said Burridge. "'Didn't I you hear a gunshot just now?' "'Yes, I fired at a kangaroo.' "'A kangaroo, huh? "'Are you sure it was a kangaroo?' yes it was a kangaroo what of that oh i see you think we are after shooting your cattle is that it speak out like a man sometimes a beast is shot about here and i'd like to find out who does it oh indeed you'd like to know who does it would you i can tell you anyway who's the biggest cattle duffer round here if you'd like to know gleeson touched one flank of his horse with his heel and rode close up to burridge "'with the gun in his right hand. "'His name is Burridge, and that's yourself. "'Everybody knows you, you old Scotch hound. "'You have as many cattle on the run "'with your brand on them as your master has. "'There is no bigger cattle thief "'than old Burridge within a hundred miles, "'and you'll be taken off the run in irons yet. "'Get out of my way, "'or I'll be tempted to send you to blazes "'before your time.' "'Burridge did not go off the run in irons. "'He left it honorably for another run, which he took up, and stocked with cattle bearing no brand but his own. Evil tongues might tattle, but no man could prove that Burridge ever broke the law. One fishing excursion to the bend was enough for Phillips. But a pig hunt was organized, and he joined it. The party consisted of Gleason, McCarthy, Bill, the butcher, Bob Atkins, and George Brown, the liar, who brought a rope-net and a cart in which all the game caught was to be carried home. Five dogs accompanied the party, these lion and tiger, crossed bull and mastiffs, experienced pig-fighters, Sam as reserve, and three mongrels as light skirmishers. The first animal met with was a huge old boar, the hero of a hundred fights, the great grandfather of pigs. He stood at bay among the tussocks, the dogs barking furiously around him. Bill, the butcher, said, "'Keep back, you men, or he'll rip the guts out of your horses. I know him well. He has only one tusk, but it's a boomer. Look out sharp till the dogs tackle him. He might make a rush at some of us.'" The boar was a frightful-looking beast, long, tall, and slab-sided, in perfect condition for fight, all bone, muscle, and bristle with not an ounce of lard in his lean body. He stood still and stiff as a rock, watching the dogs, his one white tusk long and keen sticking out above his upper lip. The loss of the other tusk left him at a disadvantage, as he could only strike effectively on one side. Lion and Tiger had fought him before, and he had earned their respect. They were wary and cautious, and with good reason. Their best hold was by the ears, and these had been chewed away in former wars, till nothing was left of them but the ragged roots. Bill the Butcher dismounted, dropped his bridle, and cheered on the dogs at a prudent distance. Good dogs! Seek him, Lion! Hold him, Tiger! The dogs went nearer and nearer, jumping away whenever the boar made an attack. At last, they seized him by the roots of his ears, one on each side, and held on. Bob Atkins and Bill approached the combatants, "'carrying some strong cord of New Zealand flax. "'A running noose was secured "'around the hind legs of the boar. "'He was then thrown on his side, "'and his forelegs were tied together. "'Lion and Tiger stood near panting, "'with blood dripping from their open jaws. "'Philip could not imagine why "'Bill did not butcher the beast at once. "'It seemed impossible that a leathery old savage like that "'could ever be transformed into tender pork.' For the present he was left prone on the field of battle, and the pig hunt proceeded. There was soon much squealing of pigs and barking of dogs among the tussocks. Gleeson's dog pinned a young boar, and after its legs were tied, Philip agreed to stand by and guard it, while Gleeson fetched the cart. But the boar soon slipped the cord from his legs, and at once attacked his nearest enemy, rushing at Philip and trying to rip open his boots. Philip's first impulse was to take out his revolver and shoot, but he was always conscientious, and it occurred to him that he would be committing a breach of trust, as he had undertaken to guard the game alive until Gleason came back with the cart. So he tried to fight the pig with his boots, kicking him on the jaws right and left, but the pig proved a stubborn fighter and kept coming up to the scratch again and again, "'until Philip felt he had got into a serious difficulty. "'He began to think as well as to kick quickly. "'If I could only throw the animal to the ground, "'I could hold him down.' "'The dogs had shown him that the proper mode of seizing a hog "'was by the ears. "'So at the next round, he seized both ears and held them. "'There was a pause in the fight, "'and Philip took advantage of it to address his enemy "'after the manner of the Greeks and the Trojans.' "'I have got you at last, my friend, and the curse of Cromwell on you. "'I'd like to murder you without mercy. "'And if Gleason doesn't come soon, he'll find here nothing but dead pig. "'I must try to throw you somehow.' "'After examining the pig narrowly,' he continued, "'it will be done by the hind legs.' "'He let go one ear and seized a hind leg instead, "'taking the enemy, as it were, both in front and rear.' For some time there was much kicking and squealing, until one scientific kick and a sudden twist of the hind quarter brought the quarry to earth. Philip knelt on the ribs of his foe, still holding one ear and one hind leg. Then he proceeded with his speech, gasping for breath. "'And this is what happens to a poor man in Australia. "'Here have I been fighting a wild beast of a pig "'for half an hour, just to keep him alive.' and all to oblige a cockatoo farmer, and small thanks to me for that same. May all the curses the Lord preserve us, and give us patience. I am forgetting the twelve virtues entirely. Gleeson came at last with the cart, and George Brown the liar. The pig's legs were again tied together. He was lifted into the cart, and covered with a rope net. Four other pigs were caught. And then the hunters and dogs returned to the place, in which the old boar had been left. But he had broken or slipped his bonds, and had gone away. He was tracked to the river, which was narrow but deep. So he had saved his bacon for another day. At the division of the game, Philip declined to take any share. He said, Thanks. I've had pig enough for the present. So there were exactly five pigs for the other five men. End of Section 18